Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Eyes on Earth, a podcast produced at the USGSRO Center. Our podcast focuses on our ever-changing planet and on the people at Eros and around the globe who use remote sensing to monitor the health of Earth. My name is Jane Lawson, and I'll be hosting today's episode where we're talking about the future of aeroscience under the newly announced leadership of Terry Soule. Terry came to Eros three decades ago from a background in Landsat use. His first task at Eros was significant and enduring, helping develop the National Land Cover Database, or NLCD, based on Landsat satellite imagery. The NLCD stands today as the definitive land cover database for the United States. Terry went on to help with the Land Cover Trends Project and then developed the Forecasting Scenarios of Land Use, or 4C, framework to model historical and future land use. Currently, Terry is overseeing an effort to incorporate improvements into the NLCD with a new release planned for later this year. Terry joins us today to talk about his new role as Chief of the Eros Integrated Science and Applications Branch and the scientific aspects he considers important to Eros and the remote sensing world going forward. Welcome, Terry, to Eyes on Earth. Well, thank you, Jane. Glad to be here. First, let's talk a little about the science branch at Eros. Give us an idea of the breadth of science going on here and the people dedicated to this work. Okay, I think I, I actually want to start with the, the people because they're the ones that make it all work. And, you know, I, I started here in 1993, and I've had the privilege of working with some of the biggest names that have ever gone through the field of remote sensing. And um, that's really is what has made Eros special over the years is the, that continuing uh, pipeline of talent and, and big names in the remote sensing field and the partnerships that we develop with uh, similarly big names. So from a, a perspective of what makes science work at Eros over the years, it really has been uh, the cast of characters that we've had. Uh, in, in terms of the breadth of work, um, we do have six major focus areas for the science and applications branch. Uh, each one of them provide just a little bit of a different flavor to what's happening on the landscape. But, you know, overall, uh, we're trying to look at the landscape, look at how it changes, uh, look at the causes and the drivers of that change, and then try to identify what the consequences are for society. Um, but those, those six general focus areas include land change monitoring, uh, which is generally uh, using something like the long-term Landsat archive to look at things uh, and how they've changed over time. Terrain uh, mapping and monitoring, so looking at topography and elevation change, including coastal change. Uh, we do wildland fire science. Uh, a lot of this work is with projects like the Land Fire Project that's uh, looking at um, fire fuels and fire danger and fire modeling across the United States to try to inform uh, hazard and risk and vulnerability. Uh, we have human health and food security, including uh, the, the, uh, some projects that are looking at famine uh, on a global scale. Uh, we have vegetation, water, and climate dynamics. This really is a, a broad set of projects that include things like looking at uh, agricultural change and uh, evapotranspiration and crop condition. Uh, and then finally, we have Landsat science, which is looking at the basics of the Landsat mission and how we can better support baseline products for uh, the future. Can you give us some examples of how aeroscience is helping to better the lives of people in the U.S. and around the world? Well, I'll start here in South Dakota. You know, from a perspective of locally, how the science that we develop at Eros is supporting uh, a number of important societal issues in, in South Dakota is, is relatively unknown by the even local population. But I, I think of agriculture. And if you've ever been to Eros, you know, we're 
out in the middle of the country, we're surrounded by corn and soybeans. And, um, you know, just from the perspective of supporting the mapping of what's on the landscape and, and where agriculture is, where habitat, natural habitat is, uh, looking at uh, things like cropland condition, you know, we have a product such as uh, evapotranspiration that is a proxy for looking at water use over time. And so we can evaluate um, how crops are performing uh, in drought conditions or, or other conditions. Uh, speaking of drought, we also have products that look at drought at a large scale across the United States that feed into things like the National Drought Monitor that are done by um, the National Drought Mitigation Center down in Lincoln. Uh, where we have things like fire. And, and so in the Black Hills, you know, a unique ecosystem compared to the rest of South Dakota. But uh, we have a very active fire program that's mapping and monitoring fires, the severity, post-fire regeneration and what the impacts are on the landscape. And even things like hunting. We know that hunting is a, a big driver of economic uh, development in, in the state, particularly in the fall during pheasant season. But We've done work looking at things like climate change and land use change and how that's impacting bird populations, for example. And so for a species like sharp-tailed grouse, we can look at how that particular species is likely to react into the future. And that relates to future availability for hunting. Just within the state of South Dakota, there, there's many, many issues but from a, a global perspective, too. Uh, the example I'd love to give is the, the FUSE project, Famine Early Warning System. And this is a project using remote sensing data to look at uh, drought conditions, agriculture, and it feeds directly into some of the work that's done by the UN and other uh, entities to try to provide famine relief for uh, populations that are at risk. Seems like an exciting set of science work to start overseeing. What does oh, your leadership yeah. role entail and how does it feel to take the lead in an area you've worked in for 30 years? <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny how a career sneaks up on you. Uh, but I, I do think it's a natural progression because, you know, you, you start as a young scientist and you're you're supporting other scientists at the start of your career. Uh, you know, you eventually move to a principal investigator and you're leading projects. And, and a lot of times you come to a decision point, you know, are you going to continue with research or are you going to go into management? And um, it's really been the last five years that I've uh, moved more towards the management side. And I think, you know, my experience has, has set me up pretty well with it. You know, I've been a contractor at Arrows for a number of years. I've been USGS. I've supported a team. I've led a team. And, and you know, especially in the last five years, I've been involved with, you know, a lot of higher level initiatives within USGS and the like. But but even so, it, it, it's definitely a change from a remote sensing uh, scientist uh, research uh, type of uh, role. Um, but uh, one of the quotes that I, I just absolutely adore that I've tried to guide my career on is uh, Tom Loveland, one of the biggest names in remote sensing, uh, who was an icon here for years until he tragically passed away a couple of years ago. But you know, one of the quotes that he gave was that if you're too comfortable in your job, you're not doing it right. For me, five years ago, I was too comfortable in my job. And you know, moving into the management job, management side of things has been a challenge, but um, I, I really love it. And, and I particularly love the part of trying to set a vision. So, um, you know, moving beyond the view of one individual project or one specific application and instead trying to look at the vision across the whole organization, how all the pieces can fit together how to manage the resources to, to best serve society. And I, that challenge is, is really a lot of fun. 
So let's focus on your vision for the future. What goals do you have for the aeroscience branch and how do you aim to accomplish them? Well, you know, I, I started again in 1993 and, and up until the early 2000s and even to this day, for many people, we've, we've always been known as the Aeros Data Center. Um, I think it was 2004 that we officially had the, the change to the Earth Resources Observation and Science Center, you know, focusing on the science side. But to many people, we're, we're still a data center. And um, that's the, the one impression that I am always going to fight because, you know, even in the science branch, you know, we, we're known for producing data. We, we produce big national scale data sets like the National Land Cover Database or Land Fire or other data sets that we put out on the web and, and people access and use. Um, and that's not going to change. You know, we're always going to be a, a creator of these large national scale data sets, the gold standard of these data, if you will. Um, but my goal, my goal is to, to move more towards integrated uh, and interdisciplinary science. And, and, and that means getting closer to the actual stakeholders and, and being more than a set of individual projects. And right now, just with the structure of, of Eros over the years, um, we we have funding from a lot of different sources. We have a number of different projects. And my primary goal is to try to tie that more tightly together, where we can break down some of those stovepipes uh, between the projects, where we can look at larger scale questions of what's happening on the landscape, how it's impacting society. Um, and answering them in a way that no individual project can, but collectively as a group, we can. And I think it's that bigger picture of seeing how all the pieces fit together to answering those questions that uh, really sum up the, the goal that I have for the branch overall. Let's dive a little bit into artificial intelligence, machine learning, or AIML. How exactly can that benefit the aeroscience projects and the people who rely on all the information that those projects provide to the world as it changes. Machine learning and AI is something we've actually been using for quite some time. And if you think of regression tree, it's a it's a form of machine learning that we've been using for only almost 20 years. And so, you know, AI in terms of some of the more advanced techniques like convolutional neural nets are are tools that have also been out there for a while. It's just now we finally have the technical capability, the hardware to support it. So I'm going to you know, go back to when we started national scale uh, land change monitoring. Uh, so that first national land cover database, we started it in 1993. I would come in and I would take a big tape and you would load up that big tape and you'd wait half an hour, 45 minutes for that one Landsat scene to load onto a computer system. Back then, those data weren't geo-registered, so we had to pick ground control points. We had to geo-register those images ourselves. That took time to actually process the image. It would take three or four hours to geo-register one image. Uh, then you had to run some algorithms to classify it. There was a lot of manual interpretation in reading the outputs of those early classification algorithms. AI is a tool that allows us to move past a lot of that early work that we did and, and really facilitate time series analysis, really facilitate long-term land change monitoring. Can you give us an example of how AI has helped to bring data faster or products to the public more efficiently? The biggest example we have right now is, uh, as you mentioned at the start, we are at this, in this stage of merging the LCMAP and the NLCD projects. And and those projects have their own form of machine learning. And so on the NLCD side, we've used regression tree and other approaches for quite some time. 
the algorithm that's used for LC Map is also a form of, of machine learning. What we're doing right now is is the next step. We're taking it to a uh, a more complex form of machine learning called convolutional neural nets. And that particular AI approach is something that for us in the science branch is, is very promising. You know, it's something that allows us to look at characteristics of the data that traditional algorithms don't. So instead of looking just at the spectral information, it allows us to also look at some of that temporal information or it allows us to potentially bring in ancillary data to the analysis in, in one sitting. So it feels like even though you have been using aspects of AIML for a while, that it still has a lot of unrealized potential ahead. Oh, yeah, there, there's no doubt. And yeah, I look at AI right now as something that's that's helping us you know, modernize and, and completely uproot our, our methodologies in terms of how we produce products. Um, in, in the future, I, I look at it, again, kind of as a, a, a pre-processing step that really allows us to move more of our resources out of pure data production into true analysis. And when I look at AIML going forward, I see a continued automation of those forms of tasks that were once very manual and very time consuming. And so I, where I would love to go in the science branch as we move forward is, you know, even our, our bread and butter products, you know, something like land cover or, or drought products, invasive species, what have you. You know, I'd, I'd love to have AI and, and some of the new approaches that we're developing automate all the production of those keystone products to the point that much less of our effort goes into the development of the data itself, and it frees up of a lot of our time to do the applications. Because the one thing that is, has been a challenge for us at Eros, I think, over the years is that direct link to the stakeholders on the ground that are using remote sensing data and, and the data we provide for applications such as biodiversity, hydrology, weather, climate. And you know, AI to me is a tool that's going to free up a lot of our time on the data preparation side uh, and allow us to spend more of our time on that data analysis side where it really matters and has an impact on society. The time has come that um, there's enough competition, there's enough collaborative opportunity with folks in private industry and academia and, and the public world, that that really needs to be part of our future and that we're using these tools from an AI perspective, but we're doing it in tandem, uh, you know, benefiting from some of the financial and long-term commitment priorities that the government can bring to bear uh, versus some of the more agile uh, approaches that private industry can provide. So some of our listeners may know that in your off time, you are an avid bird watcher and photographer. What do you find fulfilling about that? It seems like there's a vast difference between working with imagery that's collected, you know, 438 miles above Earth and then taking these incredibly detailed close up photos. There are definitely differences. But you know, it's been kind of weird over the years, you know, particularly when photography has gone into the digital world, because. You know, a lot of you know, having you know decades of experience in processing digital imagery actually is very beneficial when you're talking about bird photography right now, uh, because you know you're, you're using a sensor now with a, a digital uh, SLR camera that's got a lot of comparability to, to something like a, a remote sensing sensor, and and the processing of the data too in terms of how you process that. And, and create a, a final image that's useful. Um, there, there actually are some corollaries. 
but overall, you know, for, for me, um, I, I am an avid uh, nature lover. And, and to me, that's what bird watching and photography is about. I, when I went out uh, previously, it used to be that I would focus primarily on the photography. And if I you know, saw some, some good birds, but I didn't get some photos, I tended to think of that uh, trip as not a success. And now there are times I go out, I don't even bring the camera. It's just I, I just love being in nature. I love hiking. I like getting away from it all. Uh, and just connecting with what's on the ground. Do you have any closing thoughts for us, Terry, about your new role in Eros or Aeroscience going forward? The the one thing I do want to focus on a lot over the next year is is communication. And that, you know, I've mentioned that we're we're no longer the only game in town. We're at a stage where uh, we we do have a lot of people in the private industry and elsewhere that are are potential partners that are producing products that are, are similar to what we're producing. Um, and, and as such, there's, uh, I think, an underappreciation for for what aeroscience brings to bear. Uh, again, we have 30 years of expertise in, in land change monitoring, and um, that's something that um, isn't going to be matched by the private industry right now. We have a resource in Landsat with a long-term record of the landscape that provides us a really unique opportunity to look at things like the impacts of climate change over the long term. And and again, that's a niche that private industry really isn't going into. But overall, you know, people are often familiar with projects like NLCD um, because it is the most widely used land cover product in the world. It has just a massive impact, uh, both within the, the federal community and within society overall. Um, but I think now that anybody can go out on the computer and, and, and create an, an image, a land cover image even, uh, on their own pretty quickly, I think people take something like what we do for granted. We are still the gold standard. And you know, one quote that I, I really like is from Matt Hansen, uh, University of Maryland at the time. And you know, his, his quote was, you know, with a plethora of all this uh, new um, technology, and I'll paraphrase to protect innocent ears, but uh, the, the quote was, you know, it's very easy to produce a bad map. And, and that's true. You know, with the technology we have right now, it's very easy to go online and to, to create a product that um, you know, has a remote sensing base that you can create very quickly, but it's not very high quality. You know, my goal over the next year is communication to try to make people realize the value of of this history that we have at Eros, the gold standard products that we've produced over time, the value of aeroscience overall. And I do think partnerships is a major part of that moving forward, just making folks aware of the work that we do in our uh, science branch and Eros overall is uh, a key part of our future. Thank you, Terry, for joining us for this episode of Eyes on Earth, where we have explored the future of science work at Eros. And thank you to the listeners. Check out our Aeros Facebook and Twitter pages to watch for our newest episodes. And you can also subscribe to us on Apple and YouTube podcasts. This podcast. This podcast. This podcast. This podcast. This podcast. This podcast is a product of the U.S. Geological Survey, Department of Interior.